listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to geneticist and computational biologist Christopher Mason. As amazing and wonderful and as perfectly adapted we seem to be to this planet, it's the planet that'll kill us if we don't leave it. So, like, you know, we, we have no choice. Christopher shared his insights into how we might genetically modify humans to mitigate against the risks of space exploration, the methods for sustaining life on Mars, and how becoming a multi-planetary species will help humanity avoid its own extinction. In 1960, Manfred E. Kleins and Nathan S. Klein published a paper titled Cyborgs and Space. Although this essay is famous for having coined the term cyborg, their work was not about a future where organic humans would fuse with synthetic machines. Instead, their focus was on a myriad of biological interventions on the human body in the form of drugs and surgery that would allow us to better survive the harsh conditions of outer space. You see, they observe that altering man's bodily functions to meet the requirements of extraterrestrial environments would be far more logical than providing an earthly environment for him in space. At the time, some of these solutions to dealing with the physiological and psychological problems involved in space travel seemed far-fetched, almost bordering on science fiction. Kleins and Klein even went as far as suggesting that one solution for the lack of oxygen in space would be to modify humans so that the functions of the respiratory system would no longer be so reliant on breathing. In other words, literally modifying humans so that they would no longer need to breathe. But fast forward to today, and with new advancements in biotechnology and genetics, the idea of dramatically altering and accelerating human evolution for the purpose of populating the stars no longer seems so surreal. In his new book, The Next 500 Years, geneticist Christopher Mason provides a much-needed update by detailing a pragmatic, albeit provocative, plan for how to engineer our bodies to become a space-faring species, a mission that's becoming increasingly vital as we begin to realise that these sorts of activities might be the best way for humanity to survive its own extinction. So Chris, what are some of the greatest risks that human beings face and why might becoming a sequencing and spacefaring species help us to avoid these? I make it actually a moral question. I think it's something that's a duty that we have. And so a lot of people frame space flight uh, and and travel as really like, well, we're we're explorers. Uh, Humans always have explored. So it's just a natural progression of what we've kind of done. But, you know, I would say, you know, lots of, you know, vines do that or worms do that. Lots of things just kind of explore randomly. But uh, what we are, what I mean by duty is is a true sense of what is the the duty of our, our species? Like most people have a duty for some things in their life. But this is what I think is a unique duty that can be only enacted by humans because only we understand extinction. Now, of course, sometimes we can cause it, and that's a bad example, uh, but we're the only ones that can actually save it or even reverse it. We can bring things back from extinction and serve as really shepherds and stewards, uh, really these guardian species I propose for not just our species, but for all life. It does feel like ever since we found out about the Fermi paradox, the possibility that we might be frighteningly alone. I mean, it does feel like if we are the only expression of one intelligence and two life 
in the universe, then it's important that we become these gardeners of the galaxy responsible for the horticulture of the heavens. And one way, and it feels like the only way to do that is for us to engineer at the genetic, the cellular, the planetary, and even the interstellar level. So why is that so vitally important? It's important because it is antecedent to any other moral priority you have if you want to do anything, if you value anything at all about life, living, uh, music, art, poetry, science, uh, religion, any, anything that you value at all. If we don't eventually go to another star, it will all die on this planet. So this is the best planet we've ever known. It's fabulous. It has lots of great venues, lots of great cocktails and great food. You know, uh, I'm a big fan of Earth, but leaving Earth is not plan B, it's plan A. It is the in- inevitable goal is that the sun at some point will get too big and probably char and eat up the inner planets. And so we think we uh, you know, need to eventually think about, okay, well, that, if that's a cosmological fact, at some point you just have to go. And along the way, we, we can bring uh, you know, a real catalog of all the life's diversity and also protect its frailty uh, to eventually go to another planet. So I think what I describe a lot in the book is that this, if we don't do it, as far as we know, it's possible that nobody else will uh, and so it's really incumbent upon us to do it. I mean, many of the predictions in the book, they seem fanciful, but then you realize that it was only 60 years between when the first plane took off and then when man landed on the moon. And, and this book really feels like an experiment in futurism. And what are some of the tools that you've employed to, to think as far as 500 years into the future? I know you had to put on your, uh, your entropy, entropy goggles, goggles yeah. to write this sort of book. Yeah, so I, I, it's a little mental exercise that I've been doing ever since I was a kid. As I just yeah. imagine what any you know, sit in any room that you're wherever you might be listening to this podcast now, look around you and just think, okay, well, just think what will happen to everything that you're looking at, every object that is in a hundred years from now, what will it look like? And lots of things will be decayed, uh, but then imagine again a thousand years or ten thousand years. And that simple act of just imagining decay, which is normal and is part of just mm-hmm. the progression of matter on this planet is an extraordinary feat that only humans can do. It's this ability just to project into the future. And, you know, many species, you know, have built things for their next generation or they protect uh, next of kin. Other mammals do. But there's no other creature in the universe, as far as we know, that can think about, okay, what's going to happen in a thousand years, 10,000 years? And the plan itself is not what's important, but it's the planning that is essential. The thinking about if I recognize what will likely occur, how do I plan ahead for that? And it's just taking that same projection and then looking ahead. And so I actually think the whole book is not, I wouldn't even say I'm a futurist. I just think I'm a, I'm an empiricist. Everything in the book is based on what we know today. It's just projected rationally into the future. I mean, it does feel in a funny sort of way that our ability to imagine the future or human beings' ability to imagine the future perhaps might be the thing that is worth preserving. Yeah, at least. Well, I mean, you could also say, you know, maybe people doing uh, gymnastics or someone who can, you know, do weird tra- uh, juggling. Because there's all sorts of things you could say are really unique about humans that are kind of cute and interesting. But the one that I think unites them all is the true ability to have vision. And you don't need eyes to see. You need you know vision if you want to go to the future. And so that, that's what people can do. You're not a futurist, you are a geneticist, and you have real-life experience of Mm -hmm. dealing with these issues of how we get human beings into space. And famously, you worked on NASA's twin study, and Mm -hmm. you were directly involved in analyzing the molecular data from NASA astronaut Scott Kelly, who Mm -hmm. completed the longest-ever NASA mission in space, which was, I think, 340 consecutive days. So in what way is Scott Kelly the first genetic astronaut? 
I call him that because he's the first astronaut we've really gotten such a wonderfully deep, fine-grained view of mm-hmm. what happened inside of his body. When I say fine-grained, I mean down to each atom and each piece of DNA and every protein and every every fat molecule, everything that happened to him. Whereas every other previous mission looked a lot more at gross physiological measures, looking a little bit at sort of the blood work or you know mainly looking at physiological changes and also some cognitive changes. But here we did what's normally done for astronauts and then added in really the whole kitchen sink of modern molecular biology. So mm-hmm. you look at DNA, we look at RNA, we look at what's called epigenetics or how genes, DNA is packaged and open and controlled and regulated. RNA changes the immune system at exactly what happened when he got vaccinated in space. The first vaccine in space happened on our mission and we could see exactly what did the T cells do? What, what, what were B cells doing? So actually each cell type looking at what they were uh, really doing in response to space flight. I mean, how did you make that possible. Obviously, you had to develop some forms of technology that had never been used before to be able to do these sorts of tests. And some of them were logistics work with NASA, you know, getting samples that were a fresh blood draw from space, popped into a Soyuz capsule and brought back to Houston within 36 hours, which is fabulous. Wow. Other ones were developing new DNA sequencers in space, so getting it so you can actually do some of the testing in space, looking at genetics in uh, the space station, which is now a standard instrument. So if you want to propose experiments in space, the instrument's still up there, you can use it. And also then really just getting some of the new collection methods so we can get them back to Earth safely and then, then do a lot of the deeper profiling once you get to Earth. And so it was all those things together uh, working to define the genetic response to spaceflight. So, so what was it that actually happened to Scott Kelly during his time in space? Did he, did he get younger? Did he get taller? Or was his body absolutely <laughs> shot by the time he got back to planet Earth? He did have a lot of peculiar reactions. So, you know, one of them, he did was technically younger. So he was moving about five miles per second. And so, mm-hmm. you know, he's moving closer to the speed of light than his brother was. So he's about 0.1 seconds younger than his twin brother on Earth because of re- relativity. So he did a little bit younger there. And we could see in some cases even his telomeres, which are the sort of caps at the end of the chromosomes that humans have that keep their DNA packaged and safe, which is normally a sign of longevity and youth. If you have longer telomeres, we saw that in him. So he had these elongation of telomeres, which is unexpected, working with Susan Bailey. And then we can confirm that, again, we did just actually in another several dozen astronauts. We just published that a few months ago. So it wasn't just Scott Kelly. It seemed to be a consistent feature of spaceflight where the DNA structure and even length of how it's packaged or the telomeres get longer and changes. They also experienced a range of immune system changes, his inflammation markers, so his body really responding to the stress of a bit of radiation, the zero gravity. But actually, he really leveled off in space. After a few weeks, he'd st- most of these genetic markers were pretty stable. But when he got back to Earth, his, his ankles swelled up to the size of basketballs. So he had this really sharp reaction, which he said was much worse than previous missions. And that did go away after a few days. But we can see a lot of that was driven by the inflammation uh, markers, his body trying to respond to the, oh, crap, I'm back on gravity moment. All of that's important because when it comes to traveling to other planets, you have to know how the body is going to react when it gets there. And and seeing the sort of effects that space travel had on Scott Kelly and how that affected him in those first few moments when he got back on Earth, does that worry you for for what's going to happen to humans when they get to Mars? And after being in space for prolonged periods of time, they finally arrive and they're in 38% gravity and then suddenly they've got to now support their own bodies. I mean, how does that research then allow you to apply it directly to missions like Mars? 
we just published as a list of every drug that could help control some of those really wow. strong inflammation markers, every known drug. So I'm sure there might be new drugs we'll find and, and, and the new peptides, new molecules over the next, I'm sure, a few decades. But we do have a list already that we could think about for ways, if we are having those severe reactions, ways to address them. But I think for plants that have less gravity, like Mars is 38%, it probably would be that less painful on the body to have that sort of reaction. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that it will be easier for some of these other missions that aren't, aren't uh, Earth is pretty rough on the body, I'd say, relative to other places. Well, it, it seems that space is also equally as, as rough on the body. And on reading your book, it just seems like space is really hard. There's so many issues to deal with. And God, I could rattle off the list. There's wakefulness to radiation, to changes in metabolism, regulating body temperature, oxygenation, CO2 removal, intake of fluids, changes in the enzyme, cardiovascular control, muscular maintenance, perceptual issues, pressure changes, lack of gravitation, magnetic fields, sensory deprivation, psychosis. I mean, you could go on and on and on. Do you really think, Chris, that <laughs> science can solve all of these problems? It, it can because it has before. I think it, some of them are harder <laughs> than others, right? But think of think of two hundred years ago. I thought like you know, waterborne diseases and, and infant mortality was just presumed to be normal. Like people had big families of mm-hmm. seven, eight kids because they presumed that two or three of the kids would just die, and that was just because when they've been infants, there were so many diseases. But now we know what's caused a lot of those diseases. Infant mortality has never been lower globally, so you know we know that we can learn from what challenges the body faces and what's giving it harm or even killing humans, and then and prevent it. So I think, uh, but there too, like with infectious disease, uh, one of the you know biggest drivers of mortality in humans, you know, for just a long time, we just didn't know what was there. So we couldn't even you know, quantify or map the thing that was killing us. And, and I think the similar thing is there now with space flight, is that we don't know, you know, at a real high level, we what all the risks are, at least until this study and ones like it, where we start to look at really high resolution to what what's happening in different cell types in the body, and some of them are going to be addressable maybe quickly. It could be like a, you know, something, a simple drug that already exists or a small therapeutic. But some of them, you know, as I described in the book, might require even fundamental restructuring of, of our genome or of our bodies. And those will take longer. Those will be much harder. That's the key to the book. It's the idea yeah. of modifying humans for space. So how do you believe we can build an entire human genome designed specifically for space travel? We can do it because we now have a, a broader genetic toolbox. I think true about the book is I would have felt a lot like science fiction if it just came out even 10 or 15 years ago because there was so much we didn't know. But now we have a broad list of human genes we know we could turn on that could make it more likely for us to survive. So, for example, we have to eat vitamin C or else we get scurvy, right? Think of all those sailors who didn't get enough uh, vitamin C and they all got scurvy uh, and they would now bring limes with them. So it's a good reason to drink mojitos. I'd say, uh, uh, you know, margaritas, uh, you say, I'm avoiding scurvy, you could say that. But in any case, the gene to make vitamin C is still inside of our DNA. It's in human in the human genome. We could just turn it back on. And so, you know, some of these ideas are relatively simple. Other ones are more complicated. Like, say you want to get genes from a different species, like tardigrades are called little water bears. They can resist a lot more radiation than we do. So what if we, you know, use their tools for our own genetic code? That's something we're using in our, our lab right now is modified human cells that can resist more radiation. So... We know it's technically possible. We now know a lot of the human genes and other genes from organisms that we can use. And we have the, the genetic tools, the toolbox to actually 
enact some of these dreams. And so some of these same dreams I've had since I was like 12 years old, it's just, I'm, I'm literally saying almost the same things I did then. It's just now we actually can do the things I've been dreaming about. And I guess since I'm also, uh, I got a doctorate degree and I'm a professor, people take me seriously, but fundamentally <laughs> I'm saying the same things I have since I was a kid. I mean, you mentioned there the idea that we can use the genetics of animals and extremophiles and apply those to human beings. I mean, are there some specific examples of potential animals or perhaps extremophiles where we could borrow some of their genetics and potentially improve the human species through combination? Yeah, we can basically take all the evolutionary lessons from any organism and apply mm. them to human survival. You think, well, that sounds like a, a crazy idea, maybe, but we do it already <laughs> today. Think of antibiotics. It's an evolutionary lesson that a bacteria has learned to defend itself, and it made something that keeps it safe. We're just using the same lesson there when we have a bad infection. So the concept is really just the same as antibiotics. It's just the mechanism of implementation. How do we get the benefit of some adaptation of some other organism? And here there's plenty of great examples. There's, I mentioned tardigrades and, and they have a protein called DSUP, which is a mm -hmm. DNA damage suppressor protein, which actually can prevent a lot of this radiation damage and even help repair, it looks like, in some of uh, human cells. But there's also like uh, elephants have extra copies of a gene called P53, which is often called the guardian of the genome because it actually looks for DNA damage and also tries to keep the genome safe. So we, we know that they have a lower risk of cancer and we're trying to basically leverage their genetic lessons for some of our own cells. And so there's, there's good examples we can already pick from. And that's just the big organisms. It doesn't even get to all the bacteria as well that have plenty of adaptations. I mean, people have such a visceral response when they hear the idea of the possibility of human chimeras, the, the uh, splicing of uh, human DNA with animal or extremophile DNA. But in actual fact, humans are already hybrid species, aren't we? We've been, we've been shaped by so many, in fact, viruses in many cases. Yeah, about 8% of the human genome is probably old dead viruses that are integrated into our DNA. So you think, oh, yeah, it seems weird to be a chimera or to be a hybrid creature. Uh -huh. We're already hybrid creatures. And so I, I think it's just about making it so instead of being accidental hybrids, we could be more uh, carefully designed and, and you know functional hybrids. Do you have an idea of what sort of bodies we might need for space? I mean, on Earth, it's good that humans are bipedal, but in zero gravity, you don't necessarily use your legs in the same way. So uh, do you have an idea of what an idealized human designed for zero gravity might actually look like? I think that'd be, you know, an idealized human in the near term would be just us, you know, because we're learning. And then in the near future, those that maybe have been that have the lowest risk of any cardiovascular challenges when they're in flight. So we like, you know, it's, it sounds a little bit like eugenics, which sounds scary, like, oh, we're going to select for the people that have certain traits. But, you know, in the case of avoiding disease, we do this already today to great success. So a lot of the Ashkenazi Jewish populations do a bit quick genetic screening to avoid Tay-Sachs disease, which is a you know untreatable and fatal disease in early infancy that can be avoided with a simple genetic test. And so it's just taking that same knowledge of avoiding disease uh, and then applying it essentially to some near-term astronauts. But then longer term, I think the astronauts would be, if, you, if I had all my wishes and we could perfectly, safely, and completely efficaciously introduce new changes, they'd probably be a little bit smaller because it's just there's not as much space in space. Or technically, there's infinite space, but it is, you know, uh, it doesn't feel that way in the, in the spacecraft. 
and they'd also be able to resist more radiation and make a lot of their own more vitamins and amino acids. So I think they'd be more self-reliant. If I could be, I have one part in the book I talk about chloral humans, uh, green humans that could photosynthesize on their own. That would be pretty fabulous. But I think that's going to be on the harder end of the things I proposed in the book. <laughs> well, on that harder end, do you, do you think we could ever get to the point where humans could photosynthesize or even just engineer humans so they can produce their own vitamin C, as you suggested earlier? That I know, I know we can because it's been some of the pilot projects like this have already shown it's possible. It's just about getting it more refined and adding more components. And so I think, again, some of these things, it almost seems science fiction. You know, they're in my lab now. So I think that they're not, not at all uh, fiction. They're things that we know it's possible. Uh, but, but you know, doing things in a culture, in a dish, or doing them in a mouse are much different than doing it in a human patient where you have long-term clinical trials to demonstrate safety and efficacy. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think we're still, you know, decades away, as I propose in the book, that the long-term trials on human genome engineering we're probably not going to start till 2040, I think. So it's a ways off. But the technical components are already in place. It's just about making sure we're not doing it in a kind of crappy way. I, w- I was reading recently that the European Space Agency, they've started a para-astronaut feasibility project. In other words, they want to diversify their astronaut pool. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the ways they're trying to do that is to find persons of either short stature or mm-hmm. folk with limb differences and I'm just wondering, might we actually find that individuals who are uh, quote unquote understood as disabled, they might actually have the ideal morphology for zero gravity environments? Right. They might be uh, differently abled that makes them exactly. better suited. Yeah, so they, the certain configurations of it might just be better in space. And so I describe this a bit in the book of saying it's kind of a version of liberty, like how where will you have the greatest ability to do whatever you want to do? And that is in some cases something that's a disability in one planet might actually be a better ability somewhere else, uh, definitely. Yeah, science fiction author uh, uh, Pat Cadigan, if, if you're aware of her work, she's the queen of cyberpunk. In her short story, The Girl Thing Who Went Out for Sushi, she actually suggests that the best form we can take is sushi, in other words, <laughs> jellyfish. And she talks about how these two-steppers, these bipedal humans, they're basically useless in zero gravity, but anybody who has the morphology similar to a jellyfish would be ideal <laughs> to do most of the things that's uh, needed in space. And they are kind of good. It would be cool to see a jellyfish in space. Ideally <laughs> one without the nemastasis, the stinging cells, that would not be pleasant. I think she calls them octos, even uh, octopuses. Oct- yeah, um, yeah, I mean, they have more limbs. They'd be yeah. perfect in space, and you know there is a there is a weird rumor that uh, they're because they're so weird and alien. Maybe they've uh, yeah, <laughs> come from outer space. <laughs> but you go, you 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 track out these these five hundred years of these different possibilities mm-hmm. of different ways we're going to change who we are and how we present ourselves, and 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 a lot of these ideas are playful. You you even suggest that we might need new eyes for new mm-hmm. planets. So what would that look like, Chris? Yeah, they're definitely some playful. There's some parts I talk about taking a bath in yogurt uh, or, you know, the chloro humans part is is kind of fun. And, and, and thinking about our eyes also as areas to engineer differences is also intriguing because it's based on science that is anchored in reality today. So mm-hmm. other mammals can see very well in low light or can even see in the ultraviolet or infrared spectrum. So you can see heat, for example, at nighttime or see different hues when you have almost no light or, or just like a little sliver of moonlight. And it's just with changing how the retina functions and also the, the rods and cones in the eyes, there's ways you can engineer them to uh, give you more functions as well. So I think for planets that have that are too far away from the sun where it's really dim, that sounds like it'd be pretty useful. And, and there's plenty of precedent in the animal kingdom that we can use as a baseline. 
I mean, why can't we just rely on evolution? Mm. Why is it so important that we take evolution into our own hands and accelerate it? I think it's because without doing it in a more directed fashion or guided fashion, it may not get us to the point where we could survive on other planets. We may, I mean, maybe it will, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm saying multiple points in the book, it's possible that some of this will be needed, maybe none of it, but also it could be all of it. We don't know how quickly evolution could work. But I, I again here frame it as a moral question is that if we have all these genome editing tools, which for example, treating sickle cell disease, beta thalassemia, blindness, all these clinical trials with CRISPR where we're editing people's bodies for to cure diseases today, you know, it's mm-hmm. not hypothetical, it's happening. And so, so if you imagine just a little bit ahead, a few decades, and we're doing this and we have ways to protect people against radiation or other damage, and then we didn't do it. We say, listen, we could do a slight modification to keep you safe, but we decided not to. And you might even, you know, basically uh, subject them to almost certain death, but to a really harsh mission. That would be unethical to say, oh, we're going to, we could have protected you, but we chose not to. That would be, you know, a misuse of medicine and of technology. So I think, uh, again, it's not there today. We're not there now. But I think if you look ahead and there's ways you can keep people safe and enable them to survive. It's better than the good luck on this planet and we hope you don't die plan. It's much better to have a we've done everything we can to keep you safe as far as we can tell plan. One of the challenges is going to be quite literally propagating the stars. And to propagate the stars, we have to procreate in the stars. And one of the big questions is, uh, will embryos develop correctly in space? I mean, what happens when humanity begins to be born amongst the stars? Mice have been born in space, so pregnant mice went up and gave birth. It's possible. We know Mm -hmm. that embryogenesis can occur in zero gravity, even for human embryos, possible. Uh, But a full development from the beginning to the end, including the romantic candlelight and the wine and the Marvin Gaye beginning of embryogenesis, (laughs) all the way through to birth for humans has, of course, not been done. We don't know if it'll work. It seems like it might work, but a lot of things that you think might work don't work in zero gravity. So we don't know yet. Mm. You could have rotating space stations or spacecraft that give you part artificial gravity. It would probably be good. Eventually, maybe a lot of the procreation would be on planets uh, and moons, and uh, the rest of it would just be travel time, potentially. I'm reminded of the, um, there was a science fiction film, The Space Between Us, which was about a child born on Mars, and he had so many issues when they brought him back to Earth because he just yeah. his body just hadn't adapted for the conditions of Earth. And are we going to find that we're not going to be a multi-planet species, we're going to be tied to the planet on which we were born because our morphology <laughs> and our body will have adapted for that specific environment? It's a big question that is, the answer is maybe, you know, so I, I, I'm, or my answer would be, I hope not, or I don't think we have to be in, and, and even if it looks like that's the case, we certainly don't have to accept that as an answer, but it will be hard. We have you know, spent billions of years of life evolving on this planet, used to this downward trajectory of gravity and used to being here, right? So mm. going to a different planet, that would be a, a version of being stuck somewhere, which I also describe in the book as, you know, the ability to have liberty for planetary liberty means you could suddenly say, I want to be able to live in any planet I want. And that is a new kind of liberty that hasn't existed before. It's this ability to say, I want to have the freedom to be able to go to either planet. And it might involve, you know, genome modification or even epigenome changes where you just turn genes on or turn genes off as you need them. Uh, this also is described as, in the book as no longer science fiction. It's already happening now, already occurring in clinical trials. Surely the distance, though, between the habitable planets would mean that you'd probably have to choose which planet you were going to uh, to make your home. You would, at least if, if you're born near one. But um, as I described towards the end of the book, 
I'm hoping that after 500 years, we reach a stage where we can launch these generation ships where it's multiple mm. people living and dying on the same spacecraft because you'll need them to survive that long to get there, which is a weird concept. Like, wait, are you imprisoning people and marooning them yeah. on this craft that they have nowhere else they can go? And it's almost like a prison sentence. But to that, I say, well, we're already on a spacecraft that we can't go anywhere else. It's called Earth. <laughs> we're stuck here. We have zero planetary liberty right now. There's no other planet we can go to. Like, is it now? Earth is fabulous, though. I'm not mad about that. But factually, it's just a question of degree, not of type. It's just, are you stuck in one place, yes or no? And in both cases, the answer is yes. It's just there's a lot more to do here. This idea of a generation ship is utterly fascinating. It's like a Noah's Ark style mm-hmm, project. Mm-hmm. And this is one of your 500 year projections that will eventually put humans onto these large spaceships and send them out on multi-generation trips to faraway planets. But how do you envision something like this might actually work? First, I guess, from a technical perspective. And then what do you think a society might actually look like on these ships? The technical questions are going to be difficult, but not insurmountable. We've had uh, more than 20 years of time in the space station, so people continuously living in zero gravity, again, not for their whole lives, but we know it's possible and possible to be done at length. But you will need some supplies. I think you can get uh, some of the, the tricks I talked about before is, you know, can you get the ability to make your own vitamins and amino acids within your own body rather than depending on agriculture or some things we could do. Building really, you know, smart foods and smart plants that make things for you that make multiple products per organism. And then bring Noah's Ark, the ability to see, okay, I need a different microbe. I'm going to synthesize it and build it here uh, and then deploy it. We may have to do, you know, some of those kind of uh, optimizations for different bacteria that have their own enzymes that we need and, and cook them up. And the obvious ones are like things like fungi, like yeast, which make bread, make beer, make a lot of uh, products, functional products for us today. Uh, we would just use them as little mini bioreactors as well. So I think technically it, it's possible. And, and then socially, uh, economically, you know, they eventually would want to probably, whoever this craft might be in the future, they we they'll should have autonomy. They should have some sort of self-direction and also you know ability to de- declare eventually their own you know, government somewhere else. But in the near term, they would be functioning probably as an offshoot of wherever, whoever sent them. And initially, I imagine these generation ships similar to Lost in Space, so there'd be a multitude of families on these ships that would basically procreate with each other, and there'd be generations after generations after generations. But mm-hmm. surely that would lead inevitably to some form of inbreeding after a multitude of generations if there was a fixed amount of folks on those generation oh, ships. But I guess the way around that is to bring with you certain IVF treatments, artificial wombs, other forms of DNA, and basically adopt... Um, different children on the way. It it, it feels like it's going to change not just uh, the human biology, but human society. Absolutely. (laughs) It's just massive restructuring. The challenge is not, you know, because normally you just have inbreeding, but if you have the genetic tools are as good as we anticipate them to be in 500 years, you can actually, if the goal is to increase genetic diversity, you can just toggle it on, like turning up the volume on a stereo and say, okay, well, we need more diversity. Let's just engineer it in and make it so so it occurs. And so the the, the, the greater fears uh, of lack of diversity can be completely engineered away. And you can also bring other embryos and DNA sources with you, of course. But you know, if you want to keep the romance but increase the genetic diversity, you could do that just chemically and, and with an engineering system. The question, though, Chris, is where can we conceivably go? I mean, which exoplanets and, and how close are they? And this was actually one of the most fun parts of putting this book together was, uh, you know, I mentioned that 20 years ago or 25 years ago, this would have been impossible to write. It would have been looked at as a very much a speculative piece of science fiction. Mm-hmm. 
But today it is all anchored in reality because there are now thousands of exoplanets that we know of, and several hundred of them are very likely in the habitable zone where there's liquid water temperatures that would be survivable by humans of today. So it's this really great time where, again, like 20 years ago, we, we barely knew how many genes there were in the human genome. We didn't know a lot about, and we're still discovering them to this day. We didn't know a lot about other genomes or cell differences between uh, the human, human body's functions and the human genome activity. But now we know, you know, there's human genome sequencing is embedded into clinical care around the world. And the exoplanets, we knew the first one since 1992, and there were only a, a handful. And now we know of thousands, and we can pick them. So there's some that are only a few light years away that we can get to within 20 generations for some of the closer ones. And, and there's actually, if you look within this part of our galaxy, it's been mapped out a part of the book. There's actually, again, thousands and thousands of uh, ones that we know of, and probably millions more that we'll find in the next few hundred years. <laughs> I mean, the question is, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, the question is, why bother? I mean, should we just start by modifying humans to survive life on planet Earth post the inevitable climate crisis that we're about to cause? <laughs> uh, you can't. So yeah, I get a lot of questions. Like, the two questions are one on timing, like why do this or why not wait? Because eventually they're, they're, the question there is just we're bounded by time is that there's a, t- a point where the sun will get too big and probably literally engulf the Earth. So as far as you know, no life can live on the surface of any sun. So I think that'd be it for us. Uh, but then also, you know, the other question is, well, why now? Why? What's the big rush? Uh, and, you know, because that presumes that there's not an asteroid that hits us before then. Or, you know, for example, we've recently had a global pandemic. It could have been worse. You know, so the, the reason to get moving and to both walk and chew gum at the same time is to make so that we don't get uh, caught flat-footed, stuck on one planet that would be our, not only our first home, but sadly might become our graveyard. I mean, there's a lot of ethical considerations here. Genetic modification is still very scary, and genetically modifying the human being suggests homogeneity, but it feels like what you're suggesting is, is engineering difference, modifying humans mm-hmm. so that there's a spectrum of differentiated ways of navigating both this world and other worlds, and will that aid our survival in long term, or will genetically engineering certain diseases out of the human genome mean that there's no weirdness, no outliers, and <laughs> we could be exposing ourselves for one thing to come and wipe out the entire population yeah a great question is that you know there there is plenty of cases where the the, you know the danger of inbreeding has become very clear is that you have no genetic diversity and you run the risk of actually you know being decimated by a simple fungus or a simple virus Mm -hmm. but but here that you know you want to differentiate between the immunogenic diversity or the immune system's ability to respond and other genetic diversity and other genes in our body like you so for example if you change one gene the big worry is what if you altered, you know, something else. The the He Jinkui is a Chinese scientist who engineered human embryos to make them resistant to HIV. It's a gene called CCR5, which is what is the receptor that lets HIV into the cells. And he he took that away and said, aha, I'll do something good. I'm going to make it so these children can be born resistant to HIV or almost immune to it. But the challenge there is there's a term called pleiotropy, which means that you have one gene can do many things. And so, for example, mm-hmm. that gene, while it gives you a risk for HIV, it also is more protective, though, against West Nile virus. And so the, the challenge is you know, when you change one thing, you worry, what else have you altered? And you want to make sure that you do it very slowly and very controlled and carefully because because of that issue. But eventually, you know, we, we, we'd find things that are, you know, one one gene that's very likely causative or consistently the bad actor. And then you, you, you fix it. So we do this for disease as we speak all the time today. We've done it for Tay-Sachs disease, doing it now for blindness and beta thalassemia and other blood disorders. 
and it's you know I think there you just have to do it carefully and slowly, but we know that it can be done. And we've already decided as a species that some things are not worth keeping. Like we we don't have uh, people you know putting up protest signs to say we need more smallpox because yeah. every cre- every creature is sacred, right? Every creature is not sacred in the sense that some of them are a greater threat towards the deontogenic uh, ethics that I described. That is, there's something that could take away the ability of of us as a species to survive and also serve still as guardians because we could still guard smallpox, but we could do it in a way where the DNA is preserved, but not the actual infectious organism. Uh, so you know, there, there's ways to preserve life without having it threaten the ability to do that preservation. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? It's the unintended consequences that it can be slightly tricky. I mean, will we ever get mm-hmm. to the stage where we can model biology enough to understand the potential unintended consequences of changing the human genome? Or should we just accept and take a more uh, proactionary approach to this sort of scientific research and understand that, hey, this stuff is risky? I mean, NASA's been good on you know saying that for years. You know, This stuff, we know our astronauts take massive risks. This stuff is risky. We're going to have to do it. Let's do it anyway, and let's accept those risks. Yep. I mean, how do we balance that from an ethical perspective? You do it, you know, you're spot on there is that NASA tells their, the astronauts, listen, if you look at the total number of astronauts that have gone up, you know, there's been 583 people ever that have gone to space uh, and been a handful of deaths. And so you're really looking at, you know, depending on which year you're looking at, you're from a one or 2% chance of dying just to go do the thing you're supposed to do, which yeah. is pretty high, you know, compared to anything else. I mean, it's higher than in most other risks, certainly higher than any other job. And the astronauts accepted that risk, though, knowing that the rocket could explode, yeah. knowing that there could be, a, you know, a stroke in flight, there could be big problems because it was pushing the limits of humanity, because it was something they were passionate about. It was okay to accept that risk, and also because it was informed. It was an informed consent. They knew what they were signing up for, uh, and did it anyway. So I think as long as the informed consent is in place, and and we're very clear with what the risks are, the benefits could be that you know we become a multiplanetary species, and so the the risks are high, but the gains are higher, even higher. I mean, I spend a lot of time talking to the biohacking community, and despite informed consent, there's still a lot you can't do to a human yeah, yeah, being yeah, 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 from yeah, a genetic yeah. perspective. So I guess how do we change from a from a governance standpoint, how do we change the mindset around that sort of research whereby if someone wants to take these sorts of massive risks for the purpose of extending or bettering or understanding humanity, how do we elevate them to that sort of status, I guess? If there's a hyper-risky drug trial or a genetic trial that would enable you to go to space and explore the stars to a degree, but there is a high risk and high probability that the same thing might also kill you, but what we learn from your death would be incredible (laughs) yeah but incredible how do we change that incentive structure i I genuinely believe there might be some people who uh who sign up to that we're in a post-war world you know people used to sign up for queen and country to go to war maybe people will sign up for planet and humanity to take hyper experimental drug trials or genetic uh, modifications and see the stars I think that I think you're right people people already do with the current astronauts they know it's high risk and they do it and there are places where you know people do really crazy things uh, <sighs> that could kill them even just for fun like climbing Mount Everest there's no there's nothing up there right you get up there it's a nice view but it, you know they're doing it because they wanted something hard and so I think uh, well and the experience and the view but like th- there need to be the incentive system has to be one that is first anchored in safety and efficacy but 
once that's established, you encourage people to say, are there somatic changes, meaning mm-hmm. you've just changed the DNA of your cells, but not what you give to the next generation. You know, and that's already happening. There's, like I said before, there's dozens of clinical trials doing somatic therapy in humans. And also, if you include all the old gene therapy trials, there's hundreds of trials. So, and and there it's because people have a disease, so they're strongly incentivized to fix it. But if you just take a healthy person, there's no need to be modified and say, you know, would you like to be modified to potentially make it so you could survive this long mission? I still think a lot of people would would say yes without any much incentive. They'd say, I want to be the pioneer. I want to be the first one to try and get to Titan, for example, or somewhere yeah, farther. It might happen without us pushing that hard at all. I mean, I feel like I have to ask, what would you do, Chris, if, if you got the opportunity to go to space, but there was something that you would have to uh, have to do here on Earth to modify yourself? Would you personally take that sort of risk? Uh, I would, but not today. I guess I'd say I would, I would eventually, <laughs> but the technology is yeah. not there yet, right? It's not uh, uh-huh. the the best place to do the the editing is when you're an embryo, but right now that, even that isn't perfect. But but it's getting better. Some of the newer methods called prime editing make it so you can get much more precise into where you're changing the genome, whereas. Yeah, before it was often called, you know, genome vandalism by George Church because you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to use CRISPR to modify this one spot, except you also modified several hundred other spots, right? So that's why I say someday, but not today, because I don't want to randomly vandalize my genome quite yet. Uh, but but you know, if it got down to where you could exquisitely change one site uh, and that site alone, then 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 I think it's you know I, I would I would I would join the clinical trials. Basically, it is still like any trial; it has risk. And you say mm-hmm. you tell people we are trying a new protocol, a new method, either for a diagnostic or a therapeutic, and people would have to enroll and say, "I understand that this is not perfect. This is not you know fully vetted, and that's how it would have to start." But um, that's that's how you learn. I mean, one way to get around some of the ethical issues is just to do this stuff in space. Now, famously mm-hmm. here on Earth. We have these seasteading projects where people float these scientific laboratories out into international waters. We don't necessarily know what's being done on these seasteading institute boats, but it's questionable scientific research. Surely space steading could be a massive industry where you could carry out highly risky or ethically dubious genetic experiments on Mars in the name of survival. If you abandon people there or you put people on there, <laughs> I would almost say abandon, you put people on there and suddenly they realize there's certain things they're going to have to do to survive and maintain their survival. Suddenly the rules of the game change and yeah. we can start doing these sorts of genetic experiments which would teach us so much about what it means to be human and the limitations and the, mm-hmm. and the possibilities mm-hmm. of our own bodies. It, it very much would. It would make it so we can, I mean, the things that we think we know about the body and the cells and our genome are, are all pretty nascent. You know, even mm-hmm. the structure of DNA was, it was only, uh, you know, 70 years ago, even just finding, you know, again, the first genome was only 20 years ago. A lot of the functional maps are very recent. So we, Pushing the body to these to the uh, limits is often the best way you find new tricks of biology, new new facets of function within uh, all of human cells. So I, I think we'll have to be pretty, you know, I think uh, I'd say aggressive, uh, you know, and really just push the limits because we'll learn. I mean, within yeah. uh, safe limits and also efficacious uh-huh. limits, but at some point there's going to be a point where we reach a wall of ignorance and we say, well, we don't know what happens because we've never done it before. And doing it's kind of the best way is that you'll, you'll find the answer. What I'm suggesting is from a governance perspective, it becomes easier when it's not on planet Earth, when it's not sitting inside yeah. of the Geneva yeah. Convention or any specific countries. If you just literally offshore it, you, you put it in space, you do space steading. <laughs> it makes yeah. life, and so makes life a lot there, easier yeah. about what yeah. you can and can't, and can't <laughs> yeah, do. True, true. Uh, 
Um, but there are things we are doing up there. And you mentioned planetary protection briefly there. I mean, we have to also avoid unintended consequences, not just to ourselves, but to other planets. And how, despite our desire to uh, investigate all of these things, how do we continue to ensure planetary protection? Because we have folks like Elon Musk who's taken his Tesla out of his garage from Los Angeles, sticking mm. it onto a spaceship and then blasting it into space. And <laughs> that thing's traveling through, <laughs> potentially giving rise to a bunch of panspermia. You know, it's, it, feels like, it feels like space really is the Wild West right now. And what we may find up there is uh, you know, whole populations of weird bacteria caused by uh, uh, the expulsion Musk, of astronaut sorry. piss, you know, or <laughs> Urine. <laughs> well, you do see sometimes uh, when you see a shooting star, it's uh, sometimes stool yeah. coming, coming from the space station. So it's not <laughs> always uh, shooting stars. But it's a good point. The, the planetary protection is a really key initiative at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and NASA to prevent contamination. And it goes both ways. We want to prevent us from contaminating some other world. Because what if we cause damage there or, or we fool ourselves into thinking we found life? But we also want to prevent what's called backward contamination, where something comes from here from another planet and contaminates Earth or creates some risk. And so you, you want to really track both and eliminate as much as you can to as close to zero as possible. But it's never possible to make it zero. And that, that's been true since the 70s uh, when some of the first landers got to, to Mars. Uh, the first, you know, essentially the Vikings, for example, missions. We know that they had very, very, very low, but non-zero amounts of biomass. And so there's probably some things there. But what's kind of cool is that, you know, again, 10, 20 years ago, it would have been hard to try and guess what's there. But today we can sequence the DNA and basically every single molecule of the genetic code and compare it to things that were in the clean room at the time and compare it to anything that's ever been observed on Earth before and quickly discern, does this look like it's something that just came from Earth and was kind of tracked track along? Or is it really, truly uh, distinct and unique? And maybe it doesn't even look like DNA, but it like, you know, has some other structure that um, is carrying information. So I think we'll, um, you know, now that we have these tools, we'll be able to start to address those questions. There's moves here on planet Earth to start protecting certain elements of nature by giving it legal personhood, whether it's uh, mm. mountains, forests, rivers, or even Gaia itself, even Mother mm. Earth. Mm. Do you think we need those sorts of protections for whole other planets, for example, Mars. Do we need to give Mars some form of legal protections to stop us from, as Elon Musk has jokingly said, nuking the poles or just trying to uh, create some form of environment through these kind of hyper-risky scientific experiments to try and make this planet inhabitable by biological breathing human beings as they exist on planet Earth? Yeah, I don't. We, we could give them legal status, or we could just uh, decide as a species to just be good shepherds and good guardians in that way. You know, legal status doesn't always guarantee you'll be treated well, as, as I think many people know. It's a way to protect them, but it's uh, at some point they need to have agency, and, and inanimate objects don't have it. So it's really up to us to to serve as the, the shepherds and the stewards. And you know, a lot of times this shows up as by say this dish shows up by setting up a national park or setting up reserved land or reserved parts of society that are, are sacrosanct that we keep uh, protected. And so I think we'd want to do this for some of the planets as well and some of the moons. I'm fully with you, Chris. I'm a techno-optimist at heart, but there is so much criticism, especially because of, I guess, folks like Elon Musk and the privatization of space when it comes to the possibility to, and the problematic word is colonize mm. other 
planets. Mm. You know, space colonization is is a term that has uh, received some political backlash, let's say, because yep. it suggests that you know we're going to do nefarious things to other planets. Now, luckily, there isn't other life forms on those planets, so the things that we're doing won't necessarily um, harm other species. But still, there is a challenge there, isn't there, to get the public on board with this idea of becoming a spacefaring species when our extinction could be a billion years in the future and we have so many issues here on planet Earth. It does, you know, people really want to have a sense of priorities and say, well, do we have to do this now? Can we wait? But I still say we can do both at the same time. We have done both. We were growing the economy in the U.S. in the 1960s while getting ready to and then successfully landing someone on the moon. Uh, You know, we we can do both these things. And today we only have about one-tenth of the budget for NASA than we did then. So so there's definitely, you know, been some scaling back, but it is – Still, still something that we we can do, and and you know I think it, and and must have our, our duty to do. But the problem becomes the psychological aspect. We understand more and more and more about the body, and almost less and less and less about the brain and about consciousness and the sorts of psychoses and potential mental illnesses that we we'll suffer in space by not having a relationship with a planet. There's such a thing as chronobiology. The the yep. Earth does regulate so much about us? I mean, how can we stop ourselves from developing new mental illnesses out in space, new psychoses or, or paranoias based on the fact that we're not being regulated by such a thing as a, a planet Earth? There, there are ways to like get chronobiology match where you can make synthetic lights are called quantum dot lights that it could get the exact frequency of light at the exact time you need it. But then other components, if you say you could use pharmacological methods, but there, most drugs that you make on Earth don't last more than six or 12 months. So if it's a really long-term mission, you need to be able to make the drugs yourself. And I think people would have to be enabled to be distracted, right? You need to figure out somebody yeah. to keep them happy at games and they can hang out with each other and have dinner. But you think about, it, we've all just spent a lot of time in a pandemic recently where we know what it's like to stay at home all day. And it, it's not great, but it's not awful. Like, you know, you can, <laughs> you can survive, you get all of Netflix, all of HBO, all like, you know, these streaming services. If you could bring the totality of all of human culture with you on the spacecraft, it might be more tolerable than, than we might have thought, but... There'll be lots to do on the spacecraft. You see, that was the thing I didn't understand about the the Martian, the film The Martian. He was complaining that the only uh, music that he had was on that woman's laptop, and it was oh, all yeah. the same music. I was That's like, well, it. surely yeah. they would have brought, surely they would have brought the entirety of Netflix and the entirety yes, of Spotify yes, yeah, with them. It, yeah, it seems yeah, yeah. surreal that you would only have uh, what you downloaded before you got off before Earth. You- <laughs> to go to Mars, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Download so, okay. it all, bring it all. <laughs> yeah, know, Otherwise, know, what are we going to do up there? I guess uh, I guess it kind of loses its wonder after a while, after <laughs> yeah, a, yeah, a yeah. long period of, of time. The, the wonderful thing about the way in which you map this out is you're brave enough to really pragmatically look at the next 500 years. And you're also brave enough to be matter agnostic when it comes to cognition. In many ways, you're a a substrate puralist. To you, it doesn't matter (laughs) if the biological human being is the container for intelligence. As far as you're concerned, AI is just a valid container for human culture and human knowledge. And in actual fact, it might be the thing that 
does survive these long travels because it doesn't rely on a on a biological body to sustain it. So uh, I guess one, why take this radical view? And, and two, should we start taking that radical view seriously? Because going back to our, the beginning of our conversation, when you were saying, look, the thing that's worth preserving is not humans, but human culture. Mm. And sure, you know, culture can be stored in forms of information in electronics and, and those sorts of substrates are vastly more durable than biology. Yeah, there, there and I think I, I would even say to me, it's not a, uh, it, it's just a, like every position I think of in the book, to, I just view it as a natural logical progression of you put a few ideas together and put them a billion years in the future and then imagine, it, it just, I think the lens of one billion years in the future clarifies almost <laughs> any moral question you might have or any technical question like, okay, well, it, it, it takes away some of the smaller um, sort of technical points and makes it about really the substance. And so, for example, artificial intelligence, the reason I think it's, it's I'm, I'm agnostic towards which matter carries cognition is because it may, well, just because a lot of people project that will happen and there's some versions of AI today that get close. But just that it's because it may not, might not also be humans, right? It could be octopuses who get really smart in two, 200 million years, and they become the ones that actually become the guardians, and, and they bring back the humans that have degraded. Who knows? You know, it could be uh, other animals, other creatures, invertebrates. It could be AI. And I, I say I'm agnostic towards the type because it, it builds off a, an ethical argument made by Peter Singer. Is this idea that, of course, that, you know, racism is bad, but racism is bad because you're assuming things about a person based only on their skin, and it leads, leads to really you know, awful treatment of whole groups of people that have no basis in reality because the abilities of every person, all things being equal, are really the same. So you're, you're, you're a prejudice and a bias that is not only you know bad for society but also erroneous. It's incorrect, and so we view racism as bad for all these reasons. Peter Singer argues that speciesism is a, just the next version of racism. Is that you're saying, well, I'm human, so I'll eat whatever I want because they're not human, so I can just eat them. And like that is a racism version at a species level. And so that uh, taking from the work that he's published in Animal Liberation, I just took that same idea and went to matter and said, okay, well, we shouldn't be racist about types of matter that carry cognition. Anyone could carry cognition, whether it's an animal, invertebrate, even um, silicon. So it's just, to me, a natural, logical extension of some of these arguments that we think racism is bad, then you think cognition should be okay to be anywhere, I'd say. It does feel like true morphological freedom in space will be about being comfortable Mm -hmm. with not preserving the bipedal breathing yeah. human body, just realizing that this is the best container for this particular planet, but it's just that. It's at a container. Time, yeah. Exactly, at, yeah. at this time. But equally, don't you think there's something potentially special about human beings and our relationship with the earth and, and with the moon? Back to the idea of chronobiology. Don't you think that in a weird sort of way, we are wedded to this environment, both from a purely scientific standpoint and the way in which our you know, body is regulated by the sun and the earth's movement around the sun and by <laughs> the moon. Don't you think that at the end of the day, this is the place we should be trying to go anywhere else, at least in this form, just won't work. It's a fool's errand. It is a place that we're again like the human container, as you described it, is is a wonderful container. The, you know, this mm-hmm. extraordinary set of features and senses we have, and the pleasure of just being in other people's company. And we're social animals, and you can have you know inspiration, you can have orgasms, you can like roll around on the beach. You know, all these physical and mental and and spiritual facets to humanity are extraordinary. 
But here too, I think to put it under the the lens of a billion years, as amazing and wonderful and as perfectly adapted we seem to be to this planet, it's the planet that'll kill us if we don't leave it. So, like you know, we we have no choice. It's really it's a really simple no. You know, it's like we are wonderfully fit here, but we are not fit here forever. And so, it's just a question of if you like any of the things about humanity, then humanity has to go. Well, I always wonder if the best argument for space is is flipping the argument for space. In other words, by going to Mars, we're going to learn a lot about what it means to survive in a hostile environment. And then we can bring that research back and apply it here on Earth when we turn Earth into a hostile environment. And purely <laughs> it's, the, uh, it's the translation piece that's that's interesting. You know, before Earth is completely destroyed by climate change, let's find a planet that's gone through that terrible uh, uh, scenario whereby it can no longer sustain life, learn a lot about that, and then ensure that it doesn't happen here on Earth. In other words, the only reason for space is for the preservation of Earth itself. I think that's true. I think if we are successful with some of these generation ships or other missions to other exoplanets, we'll learn a lot, an extraordinary amount along the way. You know, as we have any time humans have explored, you go to a new place, you learn about new animals, new bacteria, you find new risks, there's new diseases, there's mm. new threats. But also uh, the amount of knowledge gained by just exploring has always been uh, you know, unpredictably fabulous. And so I think the same thing would happen here. It would be, uh, you know, it might help us, you know, anything we find out there might help us survive uh, here on Earth for sure. So I think, uh, and, and there may be even a way, there's even a, a movie that was called Wandering Earth that was, but, but this idea of like, well, if the sun's going to get too big, let's just move the planet and attach a bunch of <laughs> engines to one side of the planet and move it, which again, is kind of a crazy idea, but if it's a billion years from now, well, maybe it'd be possible right? to literally turn the planet into a spacecraft, which is something that's been discussed. Well, do you think when we become, and I say it as if it's inevitable, but when we become a multi-planetary species that will value Earth more as the hmm. origin from which life emerged? Or will we value Earth less because purely from an economic standpoint, supply and demand, hey, there's loads of Earths. You know, that's just one of the multitude of Earths that we happen to be on. Oh, I think both. I think we'll see yes and no. It's like anytime people leave home. Some people always uh -huh. have a bit of nostalgia and say, oh, I, I love the home. I want to go back home and go back to where I came from and and treasure it in a lot of ways. And other people are like, I want to get as far away from home as possible, like the teenagers of a species, and they want to leave home and go very far away and don't come back until later. So I, I think we'll see the, the same shuffle of personalities and ideals will be happening when we start to become multiplanetary as well. I mean, what, what will that do to political systems, religion? Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess there's all these questions that are just massive unknowns. And again, yeah. you, you joyfully, Chris, you flirt with them in the book, and it, yes. it's, it's a pleasure to try and uh, see how you navigate through them. And, and you're pragmatic. It isn't science fiction. But I wonder, is there any science fiction narratives that have actually done a really good job at trying to map out what some of this stuff might practically look like? Yeah, definitely, and and there, even to your point, uh, looking ahead, I think if if you're if you're a Muslim on Mars, do you pray down to where Mecca is? You know, where how do you do it? Because normally you you do it on Earth in a different way. So, or do you add a second prayer point you wow. know, for different religions? Yeah. So it's interesting to think about uh, which direction do you pray if you're on another planet. And, and so there's interesting questions like that. I do flirt with and throw in uh, little lines now and again. But this the series that I've done a really good job. I really am a big fan of the books for the Expanse. Uh, also, the series on Netflix does a really great job. Uh, Neil Stephenson's book on Seven Eves, I thought was a really extraordinary vision. A lot of the original work by Isaac Asimov uh, is fabulous. Of course, the Foundation series. 
you know, I think those are, you know, some of the books that, have, you know, I didn't actually read or see The Expanse until after I wrote this book, but it was uh, really a f- fabulous series. And uh, the thing I love about that is it imagines a seamless ease with which humans can move between the solar system and eventually other systems. But the thing that's sad about it is, notwithstanding our amazing technological advancements, uh, we still are just as backstabbing and petty and cruel <laughs> as people are today. So I, I'm hoping that coincident with this amazing technological and, and biomedical revolution that's already happening and just expanding, that people will also uh, socially and I think economically and, and sort of uh, even just emotionally uh, gain in their te- acumen and intelligence and, and, and care for each other. I mean, at the end of the day, that's more of an issue of creating drama. I mean, we are so fixed on our visions of what this might look like because of the constraints of how you film science fiction for Netflix. I mean, you you need bipedal breathing (laughs) human characters because that's that's what actors look like. You know, it wouldn't be a very interesting series if it was just a jellyfish floating <laughs> around or uh, an and octopus no, floating no around. Problems, yeah. And there's no problems, yeah. And there's no problems. Everyone just floating around. Yeah, what's the, what's it, the it, Exactly. It almost <laughs> has, right. to be, uh, has to be humans. <laughs> that's right. And then and that's kind of what I love about your writing is that that matter agnostic viewpoint does allow you to flirt with all of these possibilities. And I guess then how do you, quote unquote, bring it back down to earth? I mean, what mm. area of research are you most excited about in the immediate future for what will have the most dramatic impact to help us move towards becoming this this multi-planetary species? A lot of the work uh, that, of course, I describe in the book is looking at extremophiles and seeing how they have learned to adapt. Or So that's very exciting because everywhere we look, we find new organisms with new adaptations. But I think the thing that's even more exciting than that is the plasticity of the human genome and other genomes that, where you can do genome engineering plus epigenome engineering, where you're controlling whether something's turned on or turned off, like changing the volume on that stereo knob. Going back to that, that's an extraordinary ability that all of our cells have natively. Like uh, All of our cells control which genes are on and off as a matter of just survival and response to the environment. But now that we can engage with sort of this, uh, you, know, you know, genetic symphony inside of ourselves and begin to tune the instruments ourselves opens up an extraordinarily different world that I think is going to be unlike anything we've ever seen before. Chris has been wildly fascinating to talk to you. It was an absolute joy to read your book and you are so brave to uh, suggest uh, that you're there. able to map out the next 500 uh, years. But again, it is such a compelling and and pragmatic plan for who we could be and what our potential as humanity might be. And on that note, Christopher, I just want to thank you for being a guest on the Futures Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you to Christopher for sharing his roadmap for how humanity can become a multi-planet species. You can find out more by purchasing his new book, The Next 500 Years, Engineering Life to Reach New Worlds, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.